1: Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code
2: of conduct, yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes.
1: I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute
2: bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment.
0: What you're hearing is Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Republican from New York. And last week, she was grilling Liz McGill, at the time the president of the University of Pennsylvania. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a
1: context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer. Yes, Ms. McGill.
2: So is your testimony if it, if that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not
1: harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment,
2: yes or no? It can be
0: harassment. McGill was one of three university administrators who testified on Capitol Hill. They were being asked about how they view and respond to accusations of anti Semitism on campus. In the weeks since, McGill has resigned. The other university leaders she testified with were Claudine Gay from Harvard and Sally Kornbluth from MIT. They are now under pressure to resign as well. And this has raised a lot of complicated questions about the tightrope that school leaders are walking as students protest the Israel-Gaza war and the debate over how far colleges can go to restrict speech. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 11th. Today, we are talking with education reporter Hannah Natanson on why the fallout from this hearing matters, not just for elite universities, but for schools and colleges across the country. So, Hannah, this all started with a congressional hearing that took place last Tuesday. Can you just explain a little bit about why members of Congress were bringing these presidents of universities to come talk to them?
3: So the heads of these three schools were brought by this Republican-led committee because since October 7th, um, the Hamas attack uh, anti-Semitic incidents have been reported on their campuses. There have also been pro-Palestinian rallies um, at which some Jewish students have interpreted sort of various chants and calls as deeply anti-Semitic. And at the University of Pennsylvania in particular, um, two students are actually now suing uh, the university for what they say is a failed Uh, response to anti-Semitic incidents ranging from bomb threats at Hillel House to, you know, things like pro-Palestinian occupations of a student center. And so the education department is actually investigating uh, what's been going on at Penn in particular. But basically at all three of these campuses, like campuses across the country, you've had sort of an outbreak of student activism and also an outbreak of incidents, in many cases anti-Semitic, since October 7th.
0: We also heard in discussion during these hearings um, questions around the use of particular phrases, phrases like intifada and from the river to the sea. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with those phrases. I think a lot of people aren't. I'm hoping you can just explain a little bit more of the context here of, of what they mean and why they've become important to this debate about free speech on college campuses.
3: So these terms are extremely divisive. So to many Palestinians and their supporters. The call from the river to the sea is a call for a peaceful land, not always with the aim of a single secular state, but it is calling for ending the occupation of Israel and for Palestinians to return to the homes from which they fled or were expelled. But it's also a phrase that some Hamas militants have taken up in recent years, using it as a call for the annihilation of Israel. So that's changing how that phrase is being heard by some people now, especially since the horrific October 7th
0: Hamas attack on Israel. And then how about intifada? Uh, Because I I saw that technically that means uprising, right? The term intifada, it's an
3: Arabic word, and it's associated with two long Palestinian uprisings against Israel, one in the 1980s to the 1990s and one in the early 2000s. And this, too, is, you know, it's become a really controversial term. So to some, it's got this long history and it's a symbol of Palestinian resistance. To others, often Jewish people, it is a call for genocide and violent reprisals uh, against the Jewish people.
0: So what were some of the questions that members of Congress were hoping to get answers to?
3: Representative Elise Stefanik, the chairwoman of the committee sort of introduced the whole hearing by saying that the university presidents were going to be given a chance to answer and to atone um, for the anti-Semitic incidents on their campuses. So I think lawmakers were looking to hold these university leaders to account uh, for what they are seeing as an outbreak of anti-Semitic harassment.
0: And I'm curious, to what extent were lawmakers asking about acts of either Islamophobic violence or uh, threats against uh, pro-Palestinian protesters?
3: So, you know, in general, the focus from lawmakers, especially Republican lawmakers, has been on anti-Semitic incidents. And advocates say that the also ongoing spike in Islamophobic incidents is really getting short shrift. Um, So the Council on American-Islamic Relations said it received... 1,283 requests for help um, in the month following October 7th this year. Over the same time period last year, it only had 406 such requests. So incidents of Islamophobia are absolutely spiking, too. They're just getting much less attention, certainly from Republican legislators.
0: So tell me about how the hearing played out.
3: So it was a really long hearing, hours and hours. But I will say that it has really boiled down for many people to sort of a key exchange that went viral between uh, Representative Elise Stefanik and the three presidents, in which Stefanik was asking each of these presidents the question of whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their campus policies on code of conduct or speech rules. And none of these presidents really directly would say that such a call violated their policies.
0: I want to stop you there. Let's let's listen to some of that tape of of um, that exchange between Congresswoman Stefanik and uh, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay.
1: Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've
2: heard that term, yes.
1: And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that?
2: That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. And there have been multiple marches at Harvard with students chanting, quote, there is only
1: one solution, intifada revolution, and quote, globalize the intifada. Is that correct?
2: I've heard that thoughtless, reckless, and hateful language on our campus, yes. So based upon your
1: testimony, you understand that this call for intifada is to commit genocide
2: against the Jewish people in Israel and globally, correct? I will say again, that type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary
1: to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard?
2: It is at odds with the values of Harvard.
1: Can you not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard?
2: We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, does that and speech not cross that barrier?
1: Does that speech not call?
0: Cross- I, I think it's fair to say that listening to that exchange is pretty painful. But, Hannah, I'm curious what you hear when you listen to this back and forth.
3: I hear the difficult position that university administrators are sort of being forced into under this incredibly harsh national spotlight where they're having to weigh in on. The meaning of calls like intifada or calls like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which have generated an extremely sharp and divisive debate over whether that is a hateful call for genocide or something that Palestinians should be able to say openly. And university leaders are having to sort of wade in and in front of Congress in a national spotlight decide This is what this means when there are such split views. And as one student put it to us when we were speaking over the weekend with students on on Harvard's campus and Penn's campus, it didn't really seem like there was any answer that either university president could have given that was going to get them out of that situation okay.
0: I think that there is a lot of empathy for what college Presidents, college administrators are going through right now. That this is a really complicated situation, and that they, as you said, are having to wade into really complex issues around language and how people are phrasing things and um, and very strongly held beliefs. But at the same time, I think a lot of people hear this tape and say, "Well, why couldn't you just say that?" Yes, like calling for genocide against Jews is not something that we can tolerate at Harvard or MIT or Penn or whatever. And and I'm curious, like, what have you heard on on that front of people who say, actually, these were bad answers that these administrators gave?
3: That is absolutely true as well. I mean, many people heard this testimony and they've only heard this slice of it as well. It was, again, hours of testimony, but it's kind of all boiled down to this one exchange. And they were outraged that, you know, these university presidents seem to be unable to say something as simple as we don't let students call for the genocide of Jews on campus, um, that there was no moral leadership in that moment. And you've heard that from students. You've heard that from professors. um, You've heard that from the White House. The White House stepped in to condemn these university presidents' failure to speak out appropriately. So you absolutely have that perspective as well. I think you do also have some faculty, however, who are now concerned about possible encroachment on free speech on campus. Um, So the University of Pennsylvania president, Liz McGill, did step down over the weekend following massive outrage over her testimony. Um, But you do have more than 600 Harvard faculty as of this morning who have signed a letter urging the university to keep Claudine Gay, Harvard's president, in her position um, and so you do have – you have just such a wide range of outrage on all sides of this.
0: And I want to just read a short bit from that letter of, of the people who are essentially standing with, with Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, that they want Harvard to, quote, resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom. So I'm curious, like, what else has Gay said in the days since this hearing? Um, and how has she tried to essentially defend herself or provide more context here?
3: So, Claudine Gay gave an interview to the student paper, uh, the Harvard Crimson, um, in which she apologized for what she said. Uh, she said, "I am sorry, words matter." and you know, she, she sort of tried to explain that she had failed to convey her own truth in that moment. So, and I think this is worth quoting in full, honestly. She's told the Crimson, I got caught up in what had become at that point an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. What I should have had the presence of mind to do in that moment was return to my guiding truth, which is that calls for violence against our Jewish community, threats to our Jewish students, have no place at Harvard and will never go unchallenged. Um, So Claudine Gay has sort of spoken out fairly extensively.
0: What is the policy that places like Harvard and other universities have when it comes to this line between free speech and what actually violates code of conduct because they are calls to violence? I mean, this seems like a pretty urgent question, considering that there have been these incidents of anti-Semitic threats and violence on campuses around the country.
3: So private institutions, unlike public Uh, colleges and universities are actually not bound by the First Amendment. So private institutions have really wide latitude to set their own policies governing freedom of speech and discussion of controversial issues. Um, And a lot of them do have policies that say things like, you know, that mimic the language of the First Amendment and seek to promote free speech principles without allowing violence and harassment against students and so you have university presidents having to balance these two things stated first amendment free speech principles and another stated promise to you know protect those on their campus from sometimes word induced violence and harassment
0: After the break, we step back and hear how this moment is challenging the limits of free speech at colleges and universities across the country. We'll be right back.
1: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you,
0: you will not find it.
2: NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.
0: Why do you think this story matters beyond just Harvard or the University of Pennsylvania or MIT? I mean, these are three, like, essentially Ivy League schools that a lot of people don't have a connection to? And are the stakes of this beyond just these three campuses? I think... The experts that I've
3: been talking to over the weekend and into early this week say yes. They say that university leaders across the country are watching what is happening at Harvard and Penn, especially the Penn president's resignation, and are expecting, if not already seeing, calls from their own influential uh, donors or local politicians or you know national politicians that will influence their own free speech code. So it has become a question of who gets to set free speech policies on college campuses, especially private institutions, which are, as I said, not bound by the First Amendment, and who should have a role in that process. And I also think even going beyond just whether universities are led to reconsider their free speech codes, this is becoming a debate about what we can and can't say to each other and whether we can find a common vocabulary to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as Americans or whether even a sort of shared set of common acceptable phrases or words or slogans or understandings can be reached at this incredibly fraught moment.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you mentioned about donors because it's clear that wealthy donors of these institutions, um, alumni with power and influence, that they have a pretty significant say in um, how these comments are being received and, and actions that are being called for going forward. Um, at Penn, we saw Ross Stevens, who's an alum and CEO of a hedge fund, threatened to withdraw $100 million uh, in donations to Penn uh, after McGill's testimony to Congress. So what are the questions that are being asked at this point about the roles that, that, that donors have in in these conversations around what is acceptable on campus?
3: So I think there is concern from some that these donors are being able to set policies that should more properly be coming from faculty or administrators on campus. And there's sort of a countervailing argument, which is that, you know, donors have ties to the university. They have a right to weigh in. So if they feel that the university they used to support is promoting for example, the genocide of Jews then it is within their right to withdraw money. But at the same time, you know, you have these arguments for intellectual freedom and for the independence of our nation's sort of, you know, most longstanding universities and colleges, which are supposed to be able to conduct independent inquiry independent of anyone, including wealthy donors.
0: I'm also curious how you see this current tension over how you know what is acceptable on campus when it comes to talking about the war in Gaza and Israel and anti-Semitism and um, and kind of navigating these really thorny issues? how that kind of comes as the latest episode of these hard questions around what is free speech? I mean, it seems like for years we've been talking about. Who who decides what is acceptable speech on campus, and um, what are ways in which there is or isn't censorship or concern that that in, uh, an environment of of free thought and academic liberty doesn't actually exist anymore? Can you talk about like how how this fits into what's been happening over the years?
3: Yeah, um, it is absolutely a question that is is not new, the free speech debate on American college campuses. Um, there were several notable instances where colleges canceled or postponed appearances by right-wing provocateurs in, in recent years, especially when such... Speeches were drawing intense protest, in some cases, destruction of property. And there have also been controversies over things like at Penn, um, a law professor named Amy Wax, who has a long history of uh, incredibly racist statements, including saying that on average, blacks have lower cognitive ability than whites, um, But, you know, for a long time, Penn has sort of kept her around. And it's been these bubbling issues of what you can and cannot say on campus. But I would say that the war in Gaza has just supercharged all of this into the stratosphere.
0: I'm also curious what you make of the fact that this congressional hearing was led by Republicans and how politics fits into all this.
3: So it's interesting because in particular in recent years, as this debate over free speech on college campuses has surged, Republicans, whether pundits or or often politicians, have really taken the lead in charging that some of the nation's most prestigious universities are also the most, you know, inhospitable to conservative thought. They shut down conservative speakers, they prohibit conservative ideologies, um, and they're only, you know, open to leftist rhetoric. So um, there's been this argument being advanced for years, and you could look at this most recent wave of anger over chants, like, from the river to the sea, as sort of a, a culmination of you know, this Republican campaign because the Republicans are now arguing, look at your universities. They're so open to far left speech that they're letting people call for the genocide of Jews in order to be woke. Ironically, also, if you look at it from the other way, though, you have these Republican uh, pundits who've been calling for, you know, more free speech on campus, more free speech on campus. You guys shut down thought. And now what they're calling for is cut that back. Restrict what people can say on campus. So you could sort of look at it as either undermining everything they've been arguing for or the culmination of what they've been arguing for. Again, as with every aspect of this debate, there are millions of different viewpoints that are very deeply held and you could see it a gazillion different ways.
0: I also want to talk about acts of violence or threats of violence on campuses. We've seen this against both Jewish students, also Muslim students, and I think here it's important to point out, in some cases this is not just about free speech, right? This is about the actual concerns of violence against members of a campus community. Um, so how are campuses trying to deal with that, prevent that, um, or, and are they taking notice of, of this uptick?
3: Absolutely. Um, There has been an uptick in both Islamophobic incidents and anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th. Um, You know, for example, there's been things like someone burning an Israeli flag, you know, bomb threats made to Hillel houses. There were threats on a Cornell message board where someone threatened to, quote, bring an assault rifle to campus and shoot all you pig Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a bunch of really nasty stuff breaking out. um, And college administrators have been forming task forces or committees um, to try and address this sort of outbreak of not only words, but violent deeds. And, you know... Whether or not those task forces are able to accomplish much is sort of still up in the air as they sort of launch their work.
0: Do you think this is a moment that is changing our understanding of what it means to have free speech on campus?
3: I think we're seeing really, really fierce debate about that right now. And I think the question now is whether it translates into actual policy changes, because you're certainly having calls already for schools to update their free speech codes to, for example, ban certain kinds of phrases, like from the river to the sea. So you'll have these university policies that are normally more broad and vague, saying things like we outlaw hate speech that might, per some pressures be updated to be extremely specific. And then you've got universities wading into these fraught debates and specifically saying X kind of speech cannot be had on our campus. And to some, that would be a really, really concerning slide down a very slippery slope towards total loss of intellectual freedom. And for others, it would be a basic step to protect students, especially in this example, Jewish students from calls for the genocide of the Jewish people. So yes, I do think we are seeing a debate that has strong potential to inflict really lasting consequences on what we can and cannot say on college campuses.
0: Hannah, thank you so much for explaining all this. Thank you for having me. Hannah Natanson is a reporter covering education for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Rennie Svernofsky. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell and Rena Flores. Thank you to Jordan-Marie Smith, Adam Kushner, and Maria Manjos. If you are looking for the latest updates on the big news of the day, check out our morning news briefing, The Seven. The podcast is hosted by my colleague Jeff Pierre, and he brings you through the seven stories you need to know about every weekday morning by 7 a.m. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
2: NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.